What do you remember about Nick? Well, I remember that he was the first teacher I ever knew who properly knew what to do with student labor. Uh, I remember he had he was faced with a, a move, and there was him and an apartment, and he recruited a bunch of us to help him move out of out of his apartment. And I remember uh, helping pack up his bookshelves. This is. 16 years ago now, I think. And I came across a volume called The Simpsons and Philosophy. And I was just struck by who, what was the kind of person who would have a book about The Simpsons and Philosophy? Nick, do you still have that one? You know what? I I saw it on my shelf that I just, uh, I just packed up a little bit, but I do. Yes, it's a great book. They, Bart Simpson is held up as the Nietzschean uh, character. What is uh, this book? Through episodes and characters, it's it's a fantastic anthology to to think about a, a great American TV series and philosophy. Uh, it's so great. I that was my first exposure to the kind of way to bring philosophy and pop culture together, which becomes sort of a pastime. I really enjoy reading those sorts of uh, collections these days. That's really fun. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res are dedicated to bringing you the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Doves. And today we are joined by Dr. Nick Higgins. He is the Associate Professor at North Greenville University and also the Department Chair of the Government, Criminal Justice, and Legal Studies Department. Uh, Nick was my high school teacher way long ago, as uh, we were just talking about. Uh, he's since gone on to spend several years uh, studying for his PhD and teaching and researching at Regent University, as now at North Greenville University. Today, he's joining us to uh, for a discussion uh, all about the relationship between uh, whites, blacks, uh, property rights, rule of law, and uh, all kinds of other issues that I'm sure will come up in uh, this first episode in our summer series. So, Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. Now, I, I should, of course, also mention uh, that you are a rather successful moot court coach as well. Tell us a bit about your experiences coaching moot court and uh, what exactly is moot court? <laughs> yeah, so moot court is something that is generally done at the law school level, although has been made its way down to the collegiate level. Um, and for those in high school, you might have participated in mock trial or policy debate where uh, if you do a policy team debate, you're teamed up with another person, you have a resolution and you have the affirmative and you have the negative. And then in mock trial, obviously, you have multiple people that are doing different aspects of the trial, witnesses, lawyers, attorneys, etc. Well, what moot court is, is it's actually appellate advocacy. And so it's like policy where you have two members, uh, uh, you know, two people on a team, and you are given a generally a constitutional issue uh, regarding maybe the Bill of Rights or uh, executive power. And you are to argue for either the petitioner or respondent, which is basically the affirmative and the negative. Um, and of course, every round you switch. So sometimes you go uh, on one round and you're arguing for a particular person, and then the next round you're arguing against that particular person. And it it's a really good training uh, to kind of understand how appellate advocacy and maybe Supreme Court advocacy often works out. And so the students who do this uh, are my undergraduate college students, and they've been very good, very successful. We've been ranked in the top five in the country over the past few years. We've gotten you know up to the top three 
in, in tournaments, uh, national, national tournaments, and we've won regional tournaments. Um, of course, that's the students. I'm, I'm just the person behind them that cheers them on uh, and encourages them. So, you know, as a debate coach, you know that the success is to the hard work the students put into it. That's so true. And though uh, it's very rewarding to get to see those students who have put the hard work in, make it to the stage. Uh, I assume there's some sort of stage in moot court and there's an award ceremony of some sort then as well and trophies yes, and all that is. stuff. Yeah. And it's fantastic seeing when people are uh, awarded either oral uh, awards for, for just speaker, whether they win, you know, by their placement. Uh, and actually sometimes there's even written awards because since it's uh, legal advocacy, you need to be able to write a legal brief. So uh, those are the general, the awards at the, at the moot court level that go on. And it's, it's a great thing if any of your high school students uh, move on to college. Uh, obviously, I encourage them to look at a bunch of debate associations. A lot of colleges have great debate teams. Uh, but there's also moot court opportunities, which is I found students who have participated in debate uh, have a lot of the, the oral skills uh, and once they start learning the legal reasoning, they're they're on a good footing to succeed. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, with that, let's get into uh, at least the first question for tonight. Uh, I know we started this uh, series of conversations that we're hoping to have uh, really out of kind of Ethan and I were thinking about the George Floyd uh, events in Minneapolis and then the riots that have kind of happened and the protests that sometimes have accompanied those riots and, and so on. Uh, and so with that, I'd love to tap into some of your expertise tonight. Uh, let's start on the question of rule of law. So, uh, Nick, help us with this. What role does the rule of law play in a successful society? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And so if you think about it, obviously, there's always going to be rulers in every society. And so the question is, who are the rulers and what's the best way to determine who they are? And so um, I'm going to reference Aristotle and Locke a little bit. And so uh, bear with me if, if this is uh, a little bit old, but I think it's important to recognize that Aristotle kind of divides that the different types of governments are based upon the number of rulers and how they go about ruling, right? Are they ruling for the good of the people or for their own good? And then are there one? Are there multiple? Are there kind of the, the majority? And so he creates this little rubric of, of how we should go about and, and determine who should rule. But in the midst of his conversation, when he's kind of breaking down all of these things, he actually makes a, a, a really important comment and says the best type of rule. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing here. I, I was going to try to pull it up, but uh, I, I don't have I don't have my. Oh, here it is right in front of me here. Um, let's hear. Uh he says, this is at uh, his book on politics, 1282B, if you want to say it. Let the discussion of these things stand then. As regards the first question, it makes nothing more evident than that it is laws correctly enacted that should be authoritative and that the ruler, whether one person or more, should be authoritative with respect to those things which the laws are unable to speak. And so what Aristotle says is if you have one ruler, the, the problem is you will always have that ruler making the decisions for the specific instances. And in some senses, that might be a, a good thing. If you have an all-wise ruler who knows everything all the time, 
you would want that person to make all the decisions. The problem is all rulers are human and humans have certain fundamental flaws. Like we don't know everything. We can't be everywhere at the same time. And further, we make mistakes. And so Aristotle says, if we are going to have rulers that are human, we need to recognize that having one great ruler is just not really possible because they can't be everywhere at the same time and they would actually have to be basically a god. And he says that's not going to be possible for, for rulers on this earth. So he says the better thing to do then is to have laws because laws do not – they can be everywhere at the same time. They don't have that same limitation that a, a human has, right? They can be applied in North Carolina where you are, South Carolina where I'm going to live, California. It doesn't matter. They can, they can be in the, all the places kind of simultaneously. But the other aspect of laws is that they are – if they're good laws, and, and that's, the, that's always the, the key component – then they have the benefit of being un less easily changeable, right? And so this is where you get into this really important aspect of good laws versus bad laws. And Aristotle kind of argues that the laws are only so good as the regime that they're made in. So if you're in a bad regime, the laws of that regime are still going to probably be bad. So we need to recognize laws are valuable and are probably the better way to rule people, but they still are only so good as kind of the people within that society and the people who, if you want to say, are administering those laws. So would you say that this could be cyclical in a way? Because don't you think that it, if laws are as bad as the regime that they come from, that a bad regime would create bad laws and bad laws would create a worse regime? Yeah, so this is this is a, a really good question. Uh, Plato actually kind of talks about this a little bit in the Republic. He says there's actually a cycle of regimes where you start with one type of regime and then they start making laws that are maybe mostly good but are 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 not fantastic. And he says what you, you go from what he views is the the best type of regime to what he calls a democracy, which is a, an honor loving regime where people are, are really interested in their honor. He says, and that's okay, you can have good rules there. But he says the problem is once you've kind of made that small thing where honor is the greatest good, then you get into kind of those fights that sometimes happen where you said something bad about me and I have to defend my honor. And you start devolving a little bit more. And uh, Plato argues that in this type of instance, uh, what happens is the person who defends his honor and loses is going to be mistreated by everybody else. And so his son is going to see that he lost everything. He lost his farm. He lost his family. He lost his business. And so the son is going to say, well, it's not honor, but it's money. Right. And so, so Plato says you go from love of honor to love of money. And then he says, you go from love of money to love of equality, which he says is democracy. He says, and then you go from democracy to the worst regime, which is tyranny. 
And so you're right, Ethan, that that there is this idea that the laws, if they are bad and are not addressed, can continually make it where things get worse. The good news is well-written laws, and, and I think, you know, we're in the United States, and this is one thing that I really do appreciate about our system of government, well-written laws allow an appropriate way to modify them with some level of, of seriousness. So it can't just happen willy-nilly, but it can happen with a, a bit of forethought. So if you think about our Constitution, we have amendments, but it's really hard to do. But having amendments is put in there to recognize that, you know what, it might be necessary to change something at, at some point for the better, but we want to make sure that it doesn't happen just when everybody's emotionally uh, focused on, on one goal. And so we want to make it kind of a slow process to make sure that it's done for the sake of the rational good, not just for the emotional momentary desire. Well, that's really interesting. I, I and as you're describing that kind of those different stages of government, uh, it makes me kind of wonder where. So, uh, where would I realize this is kind of an odd thing to ask you to do, but I'm I'm gonna ask anyway. Where would you say that Plato would put the United States today uh, in that whole kind of? I mean, I, I hopefully we're. I, I don't see us being at a tyranny by any stretch. But where would you put us in that the, those cycles that you mentioned? Yeah. You know, so when, when I teach this to my students, I, I always ask them to uh, kind of think about that and, and tell me what they think. And, you know, interestingly, I think if you were to look over, say, the, the 20th century, you could kind of see the different generations that roughly fit those views of, of Plato. So, for example, if you think about the greatest generation, those that fought World War II. Generally, these people held honor to be very important and they served their country honorably. They came back and they, you know, they did things. And you could honestly tell someone, uh, don't do that because that's dishonorable and it would mean something to them. They would they would stop doing it. I, I think if you look at kind of the, the children of that generation, what we call kind of the baby boomers and maybe a little bit after uh, after those those were people who were very good at business, business acumen, successful economic growth, um, really held kind of the, the goal of the economy to be one of the primary goals and goods of society. And then I would say that, you know, go forward, maybe Gen X, maybe millennials, you know, Gen Z, depends on where you want to do it. I think you're starting to see a, a stronger emphasis on this goal of equality, primarily, uh, that We've all held there to be a fundamental recognition that we need to be treated equally in all things. And so I think you see in, in, in the more younger generations, say in their 30s and younger, not, this is not perfect. And, and you'll find, you know, people in all generations that are of various types. But this is a, just a, a rubric to look at. So I would say that we are kind of in, in that, that democratic spirit uh, that's just before tyranny that Aristotle or that uh, Plato kind of talks about. So what do you think, and not to go like too far, like off top, like, because I know we have uh, other things to talk about too, more specifically, sure. what do you think Plato observed to allow him to predict this pattern so well? 
Because that pattern is freakishly accurate. So what did like, he what did he look works. at? What is it? What did he look at like two thousand five hundred years ago to be able to, yeah, to, yeah. to see that? Twenty five hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so so this is a, a great question. I think it's just you know to some degree human nature that we all tend to reflexively uh, respond to the things that were before us, and often we do it without thinking as thoroughly as we should, right? There, there's always, and, and we'll talk about this as we get into George Floyd and other things, there's a cultural understanding that's always around us. And we often kind of just buy into it without analyzing it because it's the way that the world works and it's the way we were told the world works. And so it often takes someone to just kind of sit down and say, let me just see what's going on to, to kind of assess this. And so I, I think in a certain sense, this, this cyclical thing is, is somewhat human nature. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting. You all are here. You all have, have fathers. Um, I'm sure you've been asked at a certain point, are you going to do what your father does? Right. Uh, you know, I, I know Josh's father is a pastor. Uh, Ethan, what's your father do? He works for a technology company. So have you been asked uh, frequently, like, are you going to go do what your dad I've been does? asked that before. Yeah. And, and what's your response? No. No. Yes. And, and that's exactly that I mean that's exactly the typical response. Not not that there's a disrespect, not that right. you don't yeah, think yeah. your father has done anything well, but to some degree having seen him do it and the and the problems, right? Cuz every job has problems, every job has troubles. You've got a unique perspective of kind of the troubles of that job. And so therefore you're like, you know what? I would like to avoid those troubles and I'm going to go to a job over here and, and you might avoid some of those troubles there, but then there's all new troubles that you might not have been aware that's, that's exactly there. So I I think Plato's in a certain sense, just a good student of human nature. Wow. Yeah. Is it, what's the step after tyranny that puts, puts us back to the beginning of the cycle? Yeah. Is it revolution? Yeah, basically. So he, he doesn't, he doesn't actually say it goes back to philosopher kings per se, because uh, oh, that's kind of his best regime. He basically says that you know you, you come to tyranny, and then at some point uh, within a tyranny, probably there'll be some revolution where you can come back to it. He, he you know, you're right. He views this cyclical thing, but he doesn't necessarily link okay. the, the oh. cycle back. Hey, that's one of the beautiful things about Plato. He does have the beginning points of kind of a systematized form of philosophy, but he's not like Kant or Hegel or one of the great systematic philosophers of the, of the modern era. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily close the circle, but he leaves us just enough that uh, he, he sort of, it reminds me of uh, that line from Socrates about uh, how few people learn to live the examined life and how mm. we need to look at ourselves and our surroundings. And Plato tells us some very true things. He doesn't tell us everything. He leaves us plenty of room to be able to wiggle around some of his more uncomfortable suggestions, figure out what's true and what's not true and what he says. But Nick, I really appreciate that pattern that you pointed out. That's, that's fascinating. Now, I want to take us in a slightly different direction because you've told us a lot about these good laws and, and it seems to me that these good laws might be a good synonym for justice in a sense, in which case, um, talk to us about the relationship between rule of law in the sense of trying to create these good laws and then the use of justified force. 
Does yeah. the law have to be good in order to justify the force used to enforce it? So, you know, one of the things to, to recognize this is when the law has certain tools, and, and I think one would argue that force is a necessary tool for all laws, for, for all governments. Obviously, persuasion is the best. If I can persuade you to do something, that's that's the best. But uh, governments have the unique ability to bring about force to, to bring people who are not persuadable or persuaded uh, of, of the good of this. And so the question is, is the use of force kind of an inherent part of a regime, whether it's good or bad, or is it only good when it's tied to good laws? And, and I, I think that the fundamental way that I would argue this is that Force is always valuable or is, is always a power of all governments, good or bad, right? They all have that power. However, the laws that are not or the, the force when it's used for, if you want to say, unjust laws can be held to, say, a higher legal standard. And so Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter to Birmingham jail obviously brings this out, I think, remarkably well when he says, you know, uh, an unjust law is no law at all. And he's appealing uh, to this natural law theory, which has its uh, history. And in, in, in actually Aristotle, uh, Cicero, and then even Thomas Aquinas and, and, and other religious thinkers um, ha- have all addressed this. And, and I think uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement is exactly right, is there, the ability to use force for him to go to jail, right? He was put into Birmingham jail. He never questioned that the government had the authority to enforce that law upon him. However, he said the law itself is a bad law. And so there is this thing where the government has a legitimate power, but it's using it in an illegitimate way. And so what we want to do is not deny the legitimate power all over. You can't say they don't have the power to arrest you. They don't have the power to do this because that's kind of going too far. What you want to argue is that in this instance, the, the law is, is not following the, the higher law. It's, it's not a, a just law. And so, you know, that probably brings us to some of the, the topics of today. So I, I think so. That's a that's a great segue. Uh, I appreciate how you were kind of mediating that in terms of that's a pretty standard natural law framework. If I was tracking your logic there, that the really adherence to this higher law that that really is is something we understand through reason that becomes our criterion of whether a law is a just law or not. Am I am I tracking that correctly? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And and if the law is not and and this is where I think things get hard, but it, I, this is important. And, and I, I will say I'm probably in the minority of this position. When the law is unjust, it is appropriate to disobey that law, right? I think everyone would agree with that. However. Because the authority of the government to punish is legitimate, they legitimately can punish you for disobeying that law. And that is not a problem. So it's a very – and I'm going to say I'm in the minority position on this. And, and if you want, 
Um, I, I actually have an, uh, a, a, a blog post that I posted, a, a internet blog post called, is it better to do injustice or suffer injustice? And um, so, yes, um, I want it, that. <laughs> we want that. It's, and, and it talks a little bit about Plato and, and other things. And, and it's, it's, it's short. It's, you know, it's not my longest article or anything like that, but it, it might be something worthwhile to think about. But the argument ultimately is if the force of the government is legitimate, we can disobey the unjust laws, but we still have to be able to suffer the punishment that they legitimately have. Because though the regime is not a good regime, we want to change it. There's still a regime that is legitimate in the sense that they have that authority and, and power. That ties so, together two of the huge debates that we have in LD, or at least one of them is yearly. And then the other one was a, a national resolution, the civil disobedience debate and how yeah. you and it, whether or not civil disobedience is morally justified talked all about how people who civilly disobey or ideally civilly disobey are willing to accept the punishment for their disobedience, thus recognizing the legitimacy, the legitimacy of the government's right to power. But yes. there was another debate about violent revolution, which raises the question, like, at what, like, the whole question was, at what point is violent revolution justified? But if the government has, the, has legitimate power to force or the right to use force, then that would mean that revolution really isn't justified. In any circumstance, Ethan, that's the, the, you. You have thought these things through, I think, and debated them right. So you, uh, I, your your first point, I think, is is quite excellent, um, and it sounds like you've at least the debate has centered into kind of the argument that I'm making, and you've come to a, a consequence of that of of whether there's the right to violent revolution or not. Um, this is where I would say I. I would not say there's no right to violent revolution, but I would say it's a highly limited right. Uh, and and uh, if you're familiar with John Calvin uh, in his uh, Christ, uh, Institutes of Christian Religion, he has a chapter on what he calls the lesser magistrate. And I and, and this is, he makes a theological argument, but I, I think that there's a, a practical argument here as well, which is violent revolution should never be done by the people against the rulers, but can be legitimate if, let's say, your town mayor leads you as the people against your state governor. Interesting. Right? So saying because what happens is you have two authorities here. They both have legitimate power. They both have legitimate authority. One is using it more justly and appropriately. One less so. There is a there's an argument that you could say I'm following the legitimate one against right. the illegitimate one, um, and therefore I'm still uh, kind of following the legitimate use of, of force that the government has while uh, going against the laws. And it, 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 this is immensely complex. And there's a, right. This yeah, is, yeah. I love talking about these things and thinking <laughs> about these things as well. But that might be one uh, thought to go in, in addressing that that difficult thing. But that would mean, and I think you're right. Revolution would be very rare. Right. Um, I, I would hope that they would completely eliminate it, but it would be rare. Okay. Love. Might have to do a maybe. I, I don't know where it would fit in the show, but at some point we may need summer to do episode. A summer episode <laughs> yeah. discussing John Calvin and his relationship to modern political theory might be really interesting. 
Though, uh, Nick, if I understand Dr. King correctly, I, I don't think you're saying anything different than what he says in Letter from Birmingham Jail. Because as I read that document, at least, his, his argument is basically that it is through the suffering of the injustice and the public suffering of that injustice that really pricks the conscience of the watching public and that in a democracy in particular, that, that it's the pricking of the conscience of the masses that results in change. So there, it's almost, if I remember right, I think he uses almost the language of sort of their suffering becomes a kind of martyrdom to justice yeah, yeah. and, and truth. He talks about self-cleansing, right? You have to begin and, and make sure you're willing to, to do this. And then he goes through, I think it's his five steps. I don't mm. have it all in front of me. But yeah, I, you know, I, I think what I'm saying is is not radically different than what Dr. King uh, argued, you know, 60 years ago. Well, let's let's bring this up to to today because I think we've got a that that gives us a really helpful framework for uh, thinking about uh, more recent events. Uh, we're now about a month past the murder of George Floyd. Uh, what do you make of the nationwide response? And also, what what exactly do you see as the problem here? Is there a universal problem of racist police officers, or is this a more particular problem that seems to be a pattern that somehow has been trumpeted by different groups? Or what, what do you see happening in this, in this moment in our nation's conversation? Yeah, you know, that. let's go back and, and use Martin Luther King Jr. kind of as a, as a way to examine this and, and talk about George Floyd, and then I'll talk about police officers and, and the nation. You know, one of the things that you mentioned, Josh, that's important is that Martin Luther King Jr. recognized that this idea of pricking the conscious works best in a democracy. And the reason that is, is because when people know something, they're going to respond to it. And so one thing to think about in the George Floyd circumstances is the idea of media coverage and the making of it into a national kind of situation. Because... It is, and you can look at, at the statistics, obviously there are instances that happen without people knowing about it, whether it's racial, I'm not getting into racial, but you know, uh, police shoot someone, shoot a criminal, they, they use these holds on someone, and it never makes it into the, the national conversation. And so I think one of the things this situation is, is you're having a group of people who see in the moment a way to have a conversation about a wider issue if they kind of amplify the particular instance. And so I think a lot of what you see right now are people trying to amplify the situation in order to have these broader conversations. The trouble, I would say, with that is there are multiple groups trying to amplify the situation and there are multiple conversations that those groups are trying to have. And then I think there's some side groups, which I'm going to not really talk about, but I'm just mention that are just seeing the amplification as an opportunity to just go and be chaotic. I'm going to ignore them because those are not what I would call goodwilled actors. They, I, I, they exist, but they're not goodwilled actors in, in this situation. They're just kind of coming along because they see chaos and they, they like chaos. Those are what Aristotle would call the beasts that uh, deserve not to be in government, honestly. <laughs> so, uh, but let's ignore them. You know, you, you have a bunch of groups that are coming in and, and having a, a lot of conversations. And I think one of the things that we need to think about when we're looking at George Floyd is 
what are all of the different conversations supposed to be about? So you have some that are saying that there's racial injustice, and, and I think it's important to listen to, to them. You have others that are saying the po- there's police brutality, and I think that that needs to be listened to. You have others saying that, you know, we have a, a problem where there are criminals or old, you know, potential criminals that are uh, sometimes not given the, the type of uh, firmness that's ne- needed and they come back and they're repeated criminals. And, and again, I'm not getting into the situation of whether George Floyd himself was this, but these are the, the, the way they're using it to have these different conversations. And I think if you think about it, all of those conversations are, are worth having. There's an important conversations about racism in, in this country and, and whether racism is not just individual, but whether it can be systemic and maybe intergenerational, right? Is there something where one generation gets the effect of something that happened even before they were born? Um, and, and I think that that's an important conversation to have. I think there's questions over police use of force. You know, what do we use our police for? If, if force is legitimate for the government, the question is, how do we make sure that the users of force are those that are most trained towards the law. Um, and I'm going to go back to, to Plato a little bit on this. Plato actually, and, and he's talking what he calls the guardians, which might be viewed as the military, but I, I think you could view this as, as the police as well. He actually uses this term, and, and it, it's, not, it, it's, it's not to detriment uh, or, or insult anyone. He, calls, he says, a good guardian is a noble dog. And he says the reason that is is because if you think about a well-trained dog, A dog knows who his family is and knows who not his family is. He knows what his territory is and he knows what his territory isn't. And the ability to have a noble, which in in the ancient Greek generally meant virtuous, so a virtuous dog. um, I, I think if you think about the police in a particular way of that is you want someone who has a lot of important virtues but is also knows what is his, and by that I mean what the laws are and what the laws are not, because you don't want them to go beyond the laws, but you don't want them to not enforce the laws that are there either. So I think there's conversations we can have over police training, um, you know, how we go about educating them. Uh, actually, I think that's a great conversation. Um, and, and I think the second part of the a lead-in question to this, Josh, is, is where I'm going to kind of go now and, and make a circle back, is you said, is this kind of a, a problem that police forces have all over? Is this just a, a few bad cops? I, I think the conversation is it's a bit of both. I, I don't want to say it's all over that every police is, is bad, but I, I think that there is something that we might have gotten to the position where we ask police to do all kinds of things that isn't the legitimate role of police. And so, for example, police are not trained marriage counselors. And I don't mean that domestic disputes are things that police shouldn't be involved in, but honestly, if there's no violence, the police should not be called into a domestic dispute. If there's no one who's actually being hurt, that is the role of social workers, that's the role of religious organizations, that's the role of a lot of other groups of society. And I think if, if we go through and we're honest over what we ask police to do, 
so much of what we ask them to do is not the enforcement of law type things. And so if we were to be more precise over what their role is and more precise over the powers that they have and then make sure we have the other types of, of people and support that society as a whole needs, not just going to the police all the time, but maybe, you know, if I have a if I have an argument with a, a friend or, or something like that, I don't call the police on them. I'm still a big fan of talking to my neighbor first. You know, I, I had this. So I'll, I'll give as an example. I hope my my neighbor doesn't hear this. But uh, about a year or two ago, my neighbor has a, a bulldog that she would let out and, you know, go to the bathroom and things. And my children would play in my yard. And this dog would cross two yards to come to my yard and chase my children and growl and, and whatever else. Well, Obviously, that's a problem. And one day, they, they, the dog nipped the, the foot of one of my children. So that's, that is a big problem. Well, I don't just go and call the police. I don't just get a gun and shoot the dog. I go to my neighbor and I say, hey, this is the problem. This is what's going on. And so I have this conversation with my neighbor. And, you know, it didn't fix it perfectly, but it, there, there were some modifications there, right? Um. And, you know, my neighbor and I, we don't have a great relationship still about this because they're mad at me for having having done this with their, you know, called out their dog on this. But the reality is sometimes the solving of the problem isn't just immediately going to the fist of the police. And so I think if, if we look at what we as society ask police to do and to properly address that, you might be able to find ways to help them not be involved in situations where the force that they legitimately have is used in inappropriate ways because they didn't need to be in the situation to begin with. That is really fascinating. I'm trying to think about how exactly I want to, where, where I want us to go from there. That's, that's really interesting to think about this moment as sort of the nexus of a web of conversations. And it seems like each group is taking the, the from the the incident of George Floyd's death so many different groups have then found different avenues to um I don't mean this really in a terribly negative way but they're all cap you're from what you're saying this is they're capitalizing on this moment yeah. say aha here's how we can accomplish our particular goal through this and in which case it seems like that should prompt us as kind of average Americans to on the one hand want to participate in that conversation, but also uh, maybe be a bit skeptical of how is this event being overplayed for someone else's end? Is that, is yeah, that accurate? I, I, think, I, I think there are three things. So you're right. I think the first thing to do is we should participate by being a part of it. But I, by being a part of it doesn't mean just giving our thing that we want to do, but sometimes it means to listen to the things that are, are being said by the other people. Because I find in almost every case, even when people are reaching conclusions that I think are legitimately ridiculous, that there is somewhere at the beginning a legitimate concern that they have that wasn't fully met or addressed or maybe they didn't know the right way to do it. And so if you can figure out what that real concern is, you can sometimes peel away some of the ridiculousness and say, well, if that's your concern, let's see if we can find a way 
to, to achieve that. And so I think participating both by talking, but also by listening. The other thing you said is, is to somewhat to be skeptical. And I, I don't think the skepticism is necessarily a negative thing, but to just listen and figure out what is the, the goals that these groups are trying to bring in and are those things that are, are legitimate. So I'll, I'll give you one prime example in, in the political realm, and this is in the policy debate. You've probably been seeing in the news recently this discussion what's called qualified immunity and trying to, to remove qualified immunity. And, and actually, this conversation has hit the national spectrum because of George Floyd. But actually, that conversation has been going on for months and years before this. Um, Rand Paul, uh, or excuse me, Justin Amash has uh, proposed a bill in Congress to eliminate qualified immunity. The Supreme Court just this week had two cases come before them where they decided not to hear them. But those are cases that had been going up through the courts for the past years, right? They didn't just happen after George Floyd. And so to, to your point, you are seeing people say, ah, here's a moment where my idea is kind of attached to that moment and I can find ways to make that uh, more in the public spotlight and maybe get more people to, to agree to it uh, than would have happened before. Because honestly, qualified immunity is really just a, a small legal doctrine that only nerds really have ever paid attention to, probably up until the past few months. That being said, all of a sudden, there's a lot of conversations that are going on about what qualified immunity is. And that's just one example. And, you know, so when I talk about being skeptical, I don't think you need to say that means you shouldn't support qualified immunity or you should be against it or you should be for it. But it just means recognizing that there are people that are using this opportunity to bring things to the attention that might not have gotten to the public's eye before. This might be a terrible metaphor, but it reminds me almost of like going into the doctor for an annual physical and maybe I'll have like one bump or something. I'm like, you know, I want to ask the doctor about that one bump because it's been there for a while and I know about that one and I don't know there's anything else wrong with me. And I go in, I ask the doctor that one thing. It's like, oh, let me run a test, which is always like the worst thing you can hear a doctor say because <laughs> it's always got a huge price tag attached to it. Usually never just one test. But he goes and he runs his test. And he says, oh, we need to run some more tests. And he comes back and he's got this whole health report. And I suddenly learned there's like 16 things wrong with me. Well, and it, it seems like perhaps this is a moment where for to go back to kind of the early, early modern metaphor of the body politic as a nation, as a body politic, we've had a moment that causes for some national introspection and some reflection on where are we as a country that's raised significant conversations that are now and hopefully create the opportunity for further conversation that can lead us to a healthier place in some of these different areas. Um do you think we as a country, and again, this is kind of ridiculous to speak about a hypothetical America as if you could ever say what America can do, but as, as theoreticians are prone to do, uh, are, are we as America, are we reasonable enough as a country to really have these kind of conversations productively? I don't know. And, and I'm sad to say that, um, had you asked me, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was your high school teacher, I would have said yes. Uh, I don't know if that was because America has changed in the past 15 or 20 years or if I was more naive 15 or 20 years ago and now all of a sudden uh, I, I am unsure. So my response is 
I don't know because to have these conversations and, and so let me actually come to what this podcast is and what, you know, Ethan and other debaters are having the ability to analyze a debate from multiple sides, seeing the strengths and weaknesses of an argument is a massively valuable tool to have these conversations because you have to be willing to try to understand the other side to make sure that you are getting not a straw man, but their legitimate concern and then to address factually their specific things. And I will say that the skill sets to do that are not being promoted or taught in high schools as well as they used to be. I know that there are great high school debate teams out there, and I still encourage that. Um, But, you know, it used to be 50 years ago that these were some of the greatest sports that these schools had. And nowadays, uh, debate is often, and I view it as a sport. It's an academic sport. Oh, man. You and Mr. Herring both. Could could you just say that one more time? No, don't. Did did, did I hear you right? Did you say that debate is a sport? Could could you, as a university professor, that I presume your university has a football team, could you just say one more time for the record that debate is a sport? Don't do it. (laughs) Look, the the little bit of baseball player left in me can't accept this. I love to be. It is my opinion. All right. I like that. <laughs> that. That if you look at the qualities of a sport, debate meets all those qualities on an academic level. Okay. Um, and so if you look at, yes, so, you know, North Greenville, we have a football team. Uh, and you look at the resources that people put out there. I don't know if the resources are always utilized towards the skills that are best done for these conversations. What we've really done in the past decade or so is we've gotten into what we've heard of called echo chambers, where we're within our own group, we hear what we want to hear and we speak back in the same language. And I think most groups, not just politically, but even you know groups seeking equality or whatever else, are often in these echo chambers that they often create their own languages. I mean, it's really interesting. If you have the opportunity to spend time with them, you'll start learning that there are particular words and particular ideas that are within that echo chamber's linguistic construction. And if you're not there, it's really hard to understand it. Or, as is sometimes the case, they're using words that the rest of the world uses one way, And they're using a completely different way. And so when there's a conversation, they're not even speaking the same ideas. And so I I would say I am not convinced America, uh, you know, as, as we are, society is best able to have these conversations. Um, But I hope that there are enough people within it that are able to have these conversations that you can then influence those around you, whether it's your family, whether it's, you know, your school, whatever it is. And by doing that way, you slowly teach them that there's nuance and perspective in all of these, all of these discussions. Um, but, but that's hard. I mean, you know, I have family members that I sometimes just refuse to engage in on particular issues because I don't think they will listen to me because I'm not part of their echo chamber perspective. 
But every once in a while, I'll just add just one little thing, like very rarely to say, oh, well, you know, what about this? And that's it. And, and just occasionally trying to put that little thing out there uh, to try to, to get the echo chamber to, to look a, a little bit more broadly. Um, but I think debaters specifically actually have a great ability and skill set to do this. And so I'm assuming that's who most of the audience that's going to listen to this is. I think you all, as Americans, have a great opportunity to analyze these issues and have these conversations. And you can influence your school. You can influence your family. Um, you can influence your churches or civic organizations as well. I would actually encourage you all, if, if you want to engage civically, is go talk to the Rotary Club. Go talk to... Um, the Knights of Columbus, go talk to any of the, the local civic organizations and say, can I give the morning speech on the policy topic we're talking about and provide the affirmative and negative arguments? Like just give your aff and your neg right there in front of them. And right there, you're giving them nuanced arguments that they may not have thought before. And these people, first of all, they give scholarships to young people. So it's great to build relationships because you could potentially get a scholarship to college for. But secondly, they want to see that you, as the young people, are being engaged in things. And I think that it's a great opportunity for you all to influence society in ways that will help this conversation be done. So you think it's possible that outside of the small competitive debate bubble – to kind of like, I don't know, it seems like a common theme in this entire episode is is pricking the conscience of the masses. That we can that we as debaters can prick the conscience of the masses in a way where we can we can encourage conversations on a wider level. By not by like by leading by example, I guess is what you're saying. Like you think that's yeah. not idealistic. You think that's actually possible. I, I do think it's possible if you're willing to put yourself out there. Like I said, you, I mean, if all you do is stay within your debate bubble, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're not going to do that. But I will let you know, I could go. So I've given speeches at, you know, uh, political parties, locations and, and at, you know, things like that. But believe it or not, I'm viewed as an elite. I mean, I have a Ph.D., I'm a professor. So I'm kind of viewed in a skeptical way where you all as young high schoolers who Yes, you haven't gotten your college degree, you haven't gotten a PhD, but you've spent a lot of time studying a very specific policy issue in ways that are extensively beyond what any other person on the street knows about this. You would actually be able to come in and give a presentation in ways that I would not be able to because they're going to have a certain skepticism to me that they're not going to have to you. And so, yeah, I, I think there is a way for you all to do this, but it takes you getting out of just the debate bubble, right? It takes the opportunity for you to go out and have these conversations. And that's hard to do, right? It takes time. It takes energy. But, you know, for a debate coach, <clears throat> I know there's one here and hopefully others are listening. If you have this as an accredited class, you might make an assignment to have the students go and give a public presentation at a library or at a Rotary Club where they give their affirmative and negative arguments. And that is a great way where the, the, the professors, the teachers can encourage this interaction with society. 
Now, I love that idea. I'm just going to mention that you got quite the eye roll you from know, my co-host you're, over here. You're, you're giving him <laughs> lots of ideas here. I'm down for it. I would. I, I, I love giving speeches. I love speeches, especially speeches, like debate speeches. Yeah. Right? Like, I love speaking. You're in the middle of writing two of those right now. Yeah, so he doesn't need any more <laughs> I'm just kidding. That'd be now, awesome. I, it, it really is a good idea. Yeah. Now, Nick, as you were talking about that, it seems to me that what you're describing is, I mean, that, that's... That's hard in one way, and it's it's harder than the sort of uh, social media activism. On our previous episode, I protested the phrase activism for it. I still don't like it. I just need a better. I need a better phrase. But it's very easy to change a an Instagram or Facebook picture. It's really right. hard to go out and tell people, hey. This is the problem. This is the cause of the problem. And here are five really clear, easily implementable solutions. Please go and write to your congressman or call your senator about these things and then have to answer their questions after that. But I, I think you've laid out like one of my next questions I don't really feel need to ask anymore is like, where do you see as a road forward? I think you've already given us a really good road forward. The road forward is not so much, um, I, I'm especially leery of encouraging minors to go out and perform activism and join in protests. That's that's legally problematic. And as a teacher, sure, yeah. I, my mind fills with the worst things that could probably happen in that. But right. the, what you're describing is really something that's, on the one hand, it's doable, but it's also harder. It requires students to look at what uh, Edmund Burke would call their small platoons, their little communities that they're already planted within, and figure out where can I raise awareness of whichever one of these different conversations we've sort of been hinting at, whether it's a conversation about police brutality or racial inequality or uh, constitutional amendments or any of another dozen types of issues. Really, the students who are burdened about these issues, now that they have the skills of presentation and research, uh, it sort of then becomes... Uh, I think Immanuel Kant would at least say once you something along the lines of once you have all of the skills paired with the your own conscience has been pricked, your own reason should drive you to need to talk to other people about that. And, and I think you're exactly right. And one of the things I would mention about, you know, social media activism and, and other things, I think it becomes so meaningless because it's so easy. You know, one of the things is people have a lot more respect for the position when they know that the position is coming from a harder act. So back to Martin Luther King Jr. Why did he think suffering would prick the conscience? Because that is not most people's immediate response. Most people are, if they get hit, are going to turn around angrily and, and hit back. And so what's going to prick the conscience is the difficulty that the act is. And again, I, you know, we need to re we need to recognize this doesn't mean you need to go climb the Himalayan mountains or something like that. Like, obviously, within the context of, of where you are, and I think, you know, Burke's idea of, of the local platoon, you know, I'm a big fan of just being part of the place where you are and establishing those relationships. Uh, the, the political science term is social capital um, and, and trying to associate the, the social capital of, of your area. I think all of that, that's excellent. And so, yeah, I, I think if we are to want to be activists, whichever way it is, whichever part of the conversation we have a voice in, the best way to do it is not just to do it in this social media context, which often just falls into that echo chamber. 
but to find the opportunities that are outside. It used to be coffee shops were a great place to do this. Less so now, you know, I sit at my computer at the coffee shop and I don't have the same conversations that I, that I used to. Um, I, I will say this. I've had better conversations at restaurants uh, when I was eating near the bar, uh, not saying, you know, and people come talk to me. I actually remember once I was in college uh, and I went to a restaurant. I was by myself. So they sat me at the bar and I was reading my Bible. Um, and the guy next to me got angry at me because I was at a bar and I was just eating dinner, but I was at a bar reading my Bible. And so this led to a great conversation of, you know, what is the Bible? Why, why are you offended by it? And also drunk. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure I understand why, why you're having this, this react, but you know, you can have those conversations, but those conversations generally are to a few people. You're not reaching multitudes and multitudes. And this is where I, I'm not a big fan of, uh, you know, the Charlie Kirks or the, the, the people on the internet who yeah. make these like quick blurbs of like, Look at this person destroy the lib over here. Look yes, at this person yes, Charlie Kirk does that a lot over there, right? And and they use this inflammation, inflammatory language of how they destroyed this this person, but there's no convincing that's going on because you're not generally having a good argument. What you are is you're buttressing your own side, but you're not actually engaging the other. And there are times for both. I, I mean, it, there are important times to buttress your own side. But I think it's also important that you have those engagements. And so I think students, because of the, the focuses they've had, have great opportunities to do this in, in their local communities. I think you're right about the, the – you sort of describe like the peeling back the, the layers sort of thing where you need to have a healthy sort of skepticism – and it, what it sounds like is a curiosity for actually discovering what's true. And if you don't have that, look, I've seen all of these, like, Charlie Kirk, like, Ben Shapiro destroys liberal in 2.5 seconds. Like, what? It's literally all over YouTube. And nothing ever gets solved. It, I mean, you have a massive comment section and some good ad revenue, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's, there's, no, there's no curiosity being pricked there. And, and from what it seems like, and in pretty much every question and topic that we've gotten to tonight, that you need to be doing something different that not everyone else is doing. And from what it sounds like, something that's not easy and to what seems to be the inverse of what everyone else is doing in order to spark curiosity in other people. And that's what gets people to listen. Yeah. Ethan, I think that's a great way to think about it because you're right. The ultimate goal, uh, I think of any debate or why I think most students are brought into debate is because they do have an innate curiosity to discover what's true. They might enjoy speaking, but they want to know more. And, you know, on each resolution, you have to do the research to get both sides, which means you, you are able to know both sides' arguments, the strengths and weaknesses that they have. And while we all know that when we're debating, we're not supposed to prefer one side over the other, that in reality... <laughs> In reality, after we've done this research, we've reached a conclusion, right? We've reached a conclusion over which side is legitimately better and which side is legitimately weaker. And so I think that is ultimately what I hope the pricking of the conscience is, is to get people to have that desire to know more, 
and have that curiosity where, you know, what one person does is that little spark uh, that, as you said, Ethan, that kind of makes them want to learn more. And then that conversation kind of snowballs into other conversations. And I I do want to push back a little bit because something that you said kind of got my attention that I think you're right that after people have debates on a specific resolution, you tend to recognize the side that resonates with more judges and that can probably pick up more rounds. I remember at one tournament we had like a, an, if not more spread out there extreme than this, like a 90, 10 split between mm-hmm. votes for one side and the other. What resolution mm-hmm. was that? That remember? was the Coolidge capitalism socialism one. Oh, uh, that was a mm-hmm. badly worded. It resolution. was, an, it was fun. It was an amazing resolution, <laughs> but we saw the split, but I, I don't know if it's just me personally, I find it a lot harder to form conclusions, like truth-related conclusions, and not just debate-winning conclusions, after having seen both sides of the argument. I fi- after joining debate and talking about all of these things more, I feel like I, can't, I can conclude less and, and have less concrete convictions. So the, there's, good, there's good of that and, and there's bad of that. I, I want to make it clear that the bad of it is to reach the conclusion, therefore there are no concrete convictions to have. I'm sure there are. I just don't know where they are. That's a, and yeah. that's the best part of the, the thing is to recognize what you don't know. So you go back to what Socrates famously All I know is that I know nothing, right? This is his most famous line in the Apology. And in a certain sense, what we start to recognize, though, is that not knowing is actually a lot more informative than false knowing because if you think something is true but you don't know if it's true you're going to act a particular way whereas if you don't know that something's true you're going to be more hesitant in how you act because you're willing to recognize that i might not actually know and so in in a practical sense there is this aspect of learning that learning that knowledge is immensely complex and that even one particular area, I mean, this is, so there's, there's these fun graphs for PhDs, right? So uh, <laughs> if you think about kind of like the, the knowledge projection of life uh, based upon your education, right? When you get up to high school, you're, you're at the point where you think, you know, a, a lot of things, you go to college and you're like, okay, I know everything at this point. <laughs> then you start getting like higher degrees and you start going down, right? You, you start moving downward a little bit and you get to the point where you're below the level of knowledge you were when you were in like middle school. Like, I don't know anything anymore. And then as you work on your PhD, you start to know a lot about one really tiny minimal piece of information. But there's one thing that you know a lot about. Everything else, you don't know much about anything. And, and that's kind of the, the joke, is, is it's the, the knowledge uh, trajectory. And I think, you know, obviously it doesn't mean you have to go to higher levels of education to do this. I think this is what you learn in debate, too. You come in thinking you know a lot of things. You already have, like, when a resolution comes out, you already have an opinion about yep, it before yeah. you even started doing the research. And then as you start doing the research... You start doing the research for, uh, hopefully, most people, I think, start doing the research for their own opinion, right? They, they start, okay, I'm going to get the research that supports my preconceived opinion. Perfect. Got that. Okay, now I need to make the neg argument or the, or the, or the other argument, right? So then you start like, oh, wow. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, wow. Oh, I, that 
this point doesn't really correspond to that point. And as you start doing, you know, the research for the position that's not your own, you start seeing some weaknesses in your preconceived position. And you might see some strengths in the other position that you hadn't thought about before. And I think that that's the, the critical thing to, to do and to recognize, because you're right. What we want to do ultimately is move from preconceived opinions to actual knowledge and truth. And that path to knowledge and truth, there is a long part of that walk that's admitting you don't know something. You know enough to take the next step, but you don't know what the conclusion is quite yet. And so you just do that next step that you have because you know, you also know that there are certain knots, like there are certain things that you know aren't right that you can avoid over here, but you're not quite sure what the best answer is there. And that's where I think it comes back to in society trying to figure it out. It's good to have all these idealistic conversations and talk about just laws and, and, and have perfectly just laws, but not all laws are going to be perfectly just. Again, what I started with, we're all humans. You know, the reason we have law is because there's weaknesses of us as humans. And sometimes our laws will reflect those weaknesses that we as humans have. But it's still better to have not perfectly just laws than to have no laws and to allow those modifications as society reasonably can learn more to make the laws better. And so these conversations and these issues to have th this debate, I think is central to that, but we need to recognize the next thing's not going to be the perfect answer either. It, it will be the, I hope a better answer, but it won't be the perfect answer. I kind of love that the knowledge trajectory graph, Nick, I, I, I've found that to be very true. I, I've, I've forgotten so many things I once knew. And I think every time I now sit down to write a, I'm three years into a PhD program. And now every time I start a new class paper, I kind of go through that same process again, though, just to piggyback off on what you were saying a moment ago, I've, I found that, uh, learning to debate, uh, I remember the first semester I debated one semester, first semester of the senior year I debated, I asked the debate captain at Hillsdale, like, what's the point of all this? Aren't we all just becoming really good sophists? Like, we're really good at BSing crazy arguments. And his answer was, that, like, don't think about debate as rhetoric, where with rhetoric as the idea of the art of persuasion, beautiful and just. That's not what debate is. Cooney argued that uh, debate was a pre-rhetorical exercise. You go through debate to figure out what's not true. And sometimes, very rarely, <laughs> you, you hit on the argument. You're like, ha, this one's right. This one's true. Found the answer on this one. But most of the time, you're figuring out what's not right. But by the end of a debate, I, not, I've, at least, I've seen this in my own students since then, most people are prepared to give up and deliver a speech on the, on the resolution. Uh, right. It's also really helpful for even formulating an argument which I don't know that most, I think most debaters, they forget pretty quickly when they're past that stage in their novice year, when they have no idea what an argument is or how to make one, they forget just how hard they work to make their first argument that was really yep. clear. Even if they're using standard toolman with claim warrant impact, they forget all how hard that was. But forever after, they know how to make an argumentative declarative statement and then follow it with supporting sentences. 
So it's really easy to just, oh yeah, I'm going to make three arguments in this paper that all support the thesis. That becomes like bread and butter reflex. Absolutely. It also and, becomes and, like good debaters are, they're, they're so quick to then eventually adjust what they think they know when they encounter new information. Like it's as if you're becoming it, the habit of always looking for better data or something that's more true. That just becomes ingrained in you after doing this over time. Yeah. And, and those are, and, and those are the skill sets that are, if you want to say well beyond the rhetoric or the resolution, right? Because obviously uh, it, it's, I, I will tell one story, but it, it's rare that the resolution itself, the knowledge you learn on that specific resolution is going to be useful in your future life. That's, that's very rare. Although I will tell you one funny story, uh, how it could be, and you never know. Uh, so I debated in college uh, and one of my, one of my friends, uh, was on the debate team with me and she graduated and applied to work at a congressional office. And so she went to the congressional office and the interviewer asked them, what is your opinion on oil exploration in Alaska, which was called Anwar? Well, it just so happened that two years before that had been the policy resolution of our league. So she in like 10 minutes just wrote out her argument. Well, I tell you what, she got the job like nothing else. <laughs> because, <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> even though she didn't remember all the specifics, right? Like this is a couple years later. She still had enough of the information to just pull things out. And to this to this interviewer, she like, wow, you know so much about this topic that nobody else knows. So you never know how the specific policy resolution might come back. But the reality is the tools that you learn. And I, I like what your coach said, Josh, is, is it's kind of pre-rhetorical, right? You're learning how to formulate. You're learning how to uh, negate. You're learning how to reject. And you hopefully are learning the truth, but sometimes you're just learning what the, what's not the truth. And those types of things are some of the great lessons that you have no matter what. Well, Nick, we're, we're wrapping up here. I want to uh, ask you one last thought. Uh, or really, I guess two. Um, first off, um, honestly, I, I apologize for this. I had forgotten that you were a you had were yourself a debater back in the day. Um, so I know you. Were, so you were, and you said that you were you debated policy for Patrick Henry. Yep. Run us through kind of your debate uh, career. What were the some of the highlights? Were you did you start in college? You start in high school? Were you debating at like age three? What what's the, what's your story? <laughs> yeah. So I I started in college. Um, and, and kind of like a, a lot of people that come to debate, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to do it or not because I had my preconceived notions and, and I had to go through kind of that, that learning process. Um, but I was able to, uh, to, to do policy debate at Patrick Henry. Uh, I was fairly successful, although I will say that had a lot to do with the person who I was partnered with. Um, we won the national championship in the novice round. We came in second place in, in the, the open round. Um, you know, we had, a, we had a lot of good times. A lot of that, I have to be honest, is a good partner. I think a team is what makes the policy debate go particularly well. Um, but I, I will say maybe my highlight, or I'm going to call it my low light. And it's something my partner ribs me about to this day. So he's a, he works for the attorney general out in Arizona. Uh, and every time we talk, he still brings us up. So we're talking 20 some odd years ago now. Um, we were in the midst of a, it was the national finals round. 
Uh, and we were talking about military troops. I don't remember what the resolution was. I think it had to do with should the United States withdraw troops uh, in, in foreign. Uh, this is bef- this is after 9-11, before the Iraq war. So like, should we withdraw troops? What should we do? Um, and I made this stupid statement that we should withdraw our troops from the Middle East, particularly from Turkey, because Turkey is an island. And there's no reason to have troops on an island in the Middle East. Now, here's where sophistry comes in. I actually convinced one of the judges the truth of this. They argued it so persuasively. But I got back and my partner just, you know, in the notes that you're drawing back for, like, he just like, what is your problem? And so at the end of it, one of, one of the judges said, so I shouldn't say I convinced the judge. At the end of the judge says, I don't know for sure right now if Turkey is an island or not because you were so convincing. But that was sufficient for me. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, 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 I hate to say my, my fondest memory is one where I was a fool and a sophist, but it also reminds me not to do those things. Thinking of you as a policy debater and then coming to teach at Stonebridge right after being a policy debater, the amount of reading you assigned us makes so much more sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Ethan, you Uh, think you have it bad. Like Nick used to give us about between, I don't know, about 50 pages a night to read out of uh, the philosophy, political philosophy. And I mean, oh yeah. 50 pages a night to this day. I still really don't like John Locke. I mean, I (laughs) I kind of skipped Locke because of, Oh, and you man. gave me both of your Adam Smith volumes. I did. Got, I don't like Adam Smith either. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, that was probably the reason I did it uh, a little bit. You know, I I will say I'm probably not quite as hard as I, I was then. There's always there's always a learning curve in, in how to be a teacher as well. So true. And, and Josh uh, got some of the early forays into uh, that. Well, it it, it well I, I don't don't feel too bad. Not that you do, but don't feel too bad because I, I definitely passed some of that on to my first group of kids that I taught. I I thought those poor seventh graders were just small college students. They, they just didn't know it yet. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Well, Nick, as a former policy debater, then let me just uh, pick your brain on uh, next year's policy debate resolution that definitely seems tied into everything we've been talking about tonight. Uh, The resolution reads, resolved, the United States federal government should enact substantial criminal justice reform in the United States in one or more of the following, forensic science, policing, sentencing. What are your thoughts on on that resolution? Yeah, so, you know, I I like that they're making it kind of specific onto the, the one of three areas for you to focus on. I mean, Often topics can be so broad that when you go up against another team, they've kind of got an argument for one thing that you hadn't yet even thought about. So, and the good news is this will help you because you're focusing on policing, sentencing, or forensic sciences. Um, and, and not saying that those themselves are, you know, there's still a lot to do in each of those, but at least you, you have a, a general track to know where, where the, the other arguers are going to be going. But I think it's a great question. Um, obviously, we talked a little bit about policing earlier, so I'm not going to mention that too much. And I, and I think there's a lot you can think about there. Sentencing is a great thing to think about on the judicial side. 
And one of the things that I will just mention for people who are listening to, to possibly look at is the idea of plea bargaining and the question of the role plea bargaining plays within the, the sentencing system. Because if, if you're not aware, about 96% of all criminal cases never actually go to trial. 96% of them are solved with a plea bargain. And so the question becomes, you know, are plea bargains good? Are they just? Do they promote justice? Do they, are they likely to make sentences worse? Maybe they make sentences too light. You know, we all hear the, oh, I got a plea bargain. I'm only getting one year for capital murder of 15 people. Like, well, wait a second. That, that seems, you know, that doesn't seem to be quite just either. Or maybe you hear a plea bargain of someone says, yeah, I decided to plead guilty to uh, to this offense and, and I ha- I'm going to be a year in, in jail. Well, I said, well, if you'd gone to trial, you would have gotten less than that. Well, I, I didn't want to go to trial. And, and so there's, I think, ways to look at, at the plea bargaining side of things as well. Um, and then the other thing that, at least in the criminal justice world that I see a lot at the collegiate level uh, that criminal justice students talk about is this idea of mandatory minimum sentences, right? What's the appropriate level of, of having mandatory minimums or California a few years ago had that, or they still do, uh, the three strike, uh, policy where by, by your third, uh, felony, you're going to jail for a long time, even if it was just, you know, stealing something, which I want to make it clear. I'm not saying stealing is not a crime. It is. Uh, but if you're going to jail for 10 years for stealing a candy bar from Wawa, that we would say that seems to be unjust. But if it's your third felony, you know, people might say, well, wait a second, that that's, you know, that's there. So I think on the on the sentencing area, there's a lot of great things to, to think about uh, within that. You know, forensic science is, is, a, is a really fascinating one, uh, especially as debaters, because I think as, as people start looking at forensic science, they actually might start to discover forensic science isn't like CSI or NCIS or all those television series where we think if we put the fingerprint in there or put the drop of blood in there, the computer spits out a 100% directly knowable conclusion of who that person is. Forensic science has such a large degree of uncertainty and unknowability that sometimes uh, and, and I, I have to find the article about this. There was actually a guy from Oregon who has the same fingerprint of a terrorist in, uh, France that blew up the train. This is about a decade ago. And the police actually came to this guy's house because the fingerprint came up and, and matched his, and he had to prove that he wasn't in France during that time. Now that was pretty easy to prove because he had never left the United States in his life. So it's, you know, it's pretty like, I've never gone anywhere. Um, but you know, there, there is a certain level of uncertainty and we often think that science will give us a high level of, of clear knowledge. And I think, uh, the reality is science is, is like debate that it doesn't always tell us for certain something. It helps us know a lot of things that are not, but it doesn't always give us that 100% accurate conclusion. So, um, I, I like those three areas. And, and I think there's a, you know, I'd love to see some debates and, and hear some resolutions and then how people argue those, but I think there's a lot of, of fun that can be had with those. There definitely is. And, uh, and look at our time we're, we, we're probably need to wrap this up. 
maybe closer towards the start of this resolution in September. We might need to, I might want to see if you'd uh, be willing to come back on for a specific conversation just about that resolution. Because um, at least the current discussion I've seen on uh, a couple of coaches' uh, Facebook groups and heard from debaters, uh, the, the, the general take so far is that the rationale for affirmative is going to be almost entirely uh, is it's going to be a race based AF is mm. is probably the the general trajectory that I think people are going. I'd love to uh, just get your take on uh, what what exactly is the state of the of the criminal justice system in the United States. But I think that's probably a better kept as a conversation for a, a future episode at this point. Sounds good. Uh, okay, so. Uh, well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the episode tonight. This has been a really fun conversation. I've uh, enjoyed getting to catch up a little bit and uh, uh, pick your brain about this. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, our guest has been Dr. Nick Higgins. Uh, he is the an associate professor at North Greenville University and is the department chair of the Government, Criminal Justice, and Legal Studies Department uh, at North Greenville University. Uh, Ethan, how can people get in touch with us? If they, or also, if you have any final thoughts, I kind of launched right into closing. No, no, I, it was great meeting you, Nick. On it, like I, I loved meeting you. I loved hearing from you. It was a really refreshing perspective. I'm like, I've been working a lot, so you kind of like reignited my debate bug a little bit, got me thinking about these things. But yeah, if people want to get in contact with us, they could do so at what's the res at gmail.com. That's W H A T S T H E R E S at gmail.com. We have a website, www.whatstheres.com, where we have all of our emails, social media handles, and everything. We have Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at what's the res underscore. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.